Hello everyone, welcome to A Reason for Hope. Why are you giggling? I wasn't singing right before the uh, show started. No, that wasn't me at all. <laughs> Not singing lyrics. The, he was singing the lyrics to the theme from Reason for Hope. That's right. Not I'd expect to see from Sundance, but here we go. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Something I, I now hum along to in my sleep, the intro music. Welcome to A Reason for Hope. We're glad you're out there joining us, A Reason for Hope. In case it's your first time with us, or if you're forgetful like me, is an hour-long live broadcast, which is guided for the most part by your questions on the Bible, your biblically-related questions, maybe a verse or passage of Scripture that's confused you, you'd like it explained, you've come across it in your reading, like, what does that mean? How does that relate to my life? Maybe a contradiction that you've become aware of, perhaps something um, someone's asked you about the Bible, you're not sure how to respond to that, maybe even something you're going through in your life you'd like to um, honor the Lord with your decisions, but not sure what the Bible says about your different circumstances and life choices, things like that, or other religions and worldviews and how they relate to Christianity and the Bible, really anything along those lines, as long as it's a sincere and honest question, we certainly appreciate that, and as long as you know that the Bible is where we're going to find the answers to your questions on this show. So my name's Dave Robson, I'm your host today, I'll be on all those platforms with you as your questions come on in. I'll be going over those in a moment just so you know the different methods by which you can join us. But with us today, we have Pastor Scott Richards, who's the senior pastor here at Calvary Christian Fellowship. That is me. That is you. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Feels like a while since I've been on the show with you for some reason. Yeah, I think we've missed each other, like ships in the night. Yes, we have. Yes, very much. (laughs) Well, it's great to be back with you. Yes. Especially with your sporty cap. What do you think of that? I'm feeling very British today. I I like it. (laughs) Very middle aged. Very mod, man. (laughs) From that Austin Powers vibe. That's right. A little culture on the show. It's about time. Yeah. Also, Pastor Sean Richards (laughs) with us, looking perplexed (laughs) over there. How you doing? You were a little under the weather. Are you over the weather now? Whatever that means. <laughs> it was a precaution more than anything else. You lose four pounds the hard way. You want to keep it to yourself. By the way, is the intro music Sundance or is it Tourist in Paradise? Uh, it is Sundance. Okay. Is it? yeah. It's the uh, Rippingtons, those, yeah. right? If you want uh, to... It used to be Tourist in Paradise. That used to be our intro and outro music. This song by this jazz group, the Rippingtons. And uh, if you've ever worked in radio or television, especially doing talk shows and such, uh, when you're coming up against a commercial break, a certain bed of theme music will come up and become louder and louder as you get close to closer to the break. Well, since uh, my right-hand man, protege, and all-around good guy, as well as my son, Sean, was there all those years when I used to do the program on live radio out of our house, uh, he used to hear that uh, tune, Tourist in Paradise, by the Rippingtons quite a bit. Oh, yeah. On a daily basis. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, no, we have it's both in a professional and casual setting. Yes. Well, I'm glad you're back. Glad you're feeling better. It's good to have you. And good I did get a both. chance to meet the Rippingtons once. You yeah. did? Yeah. Uh, they came out and uh, played a, a fundraiser for Cal State Channel Islands, which my mom has been a part of establishing the art department. Got a chance to meet them all. And uh, the uh, percussionist on the Rippingtons, Steve Reed, who has always been sort of a hero of mine, yeah. very nice guy, he invited me to come out and uh, participate in his drum circle that he has at his home in uh, the San Fernando Valley. Wow. However, I live here in Tucson, so no drum circle for me. Yeah, no. That sounds yeah, a little funky to me, though. A drum circle? A drum circle, yeah. 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 It does yeah. sound a little yeah. <laughs> interesting. Yeah. So, but anyway, <laughs> Rippington's trivia for you there. Well, we'll have, this, we'll have a little Bible circle instead. Yeah, that'll be today good. As we, as, we, as we do. So, well, thank you both for being here. We appreciate you 
and I appreciate you out there joining us as well. As I mentioned, Reason for Hope is a, a live broadcast. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 to 6 p.m. here in Tucson, Arizona, Mountain Standard Time. And it's a ministry and outreach of Calvary Christian Fellowship here in Tucson. As always, if you're in the Tucson, Arizona area, if you're looking for somewhere to worship and to get in the Word, you are more than welcome to come and join us. You can check out our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com, and get more details. Reach out to us with any questions you may have about that. But we're right near Prince and I-10 on the west side of the freeway, just about a block north from the Prince I-10 exit right there. Pretty convenient location for you. Um, again, come along, check us out. We have Sunday services, a Wednesday evening service. We teach through the Word, verse, chapter, book at a time. We'd love for you to join us. So again, calvarychristianfellowship.com. We're also streaming live to that website. If you go to the Watch Live tab, that will take you to our live page. You can sign in with a username, and then there'll be a chat function where you can send in your uh, questions, and I'll be right there receiving them as they come on in. When we're offline, you'll see a schedule of upcoming events and a countdown as well, so you can see what we have coming up. The direct link for that is ccftucson.online.church. You can type that right into your browser, ccftucson.online.church. will take you to that same place. Or again, calvarychristianfellowship.com and the Watch Live link. We're on Facebook as well. Don't forget to like and share on Facebook. We'd appreciate that, but we're streaming live. You can send your question in on the chat function there as well, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson there on Facebook. We have an app for your mobile device. Again, look for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson in your app store. Uh, look for that red background with the white Calvary Chapel Dove logo, and you can then watch us on your cell phone. We have archived messages there as well. Um, you can sign up for events and all kinds of stuff. So check out our app. And also on Roku and Apple TV, we have uh, a channel. So you can add us as a channel in your channel store if you have that capability as well. A Reason for Hope is the name of the channel on YouTube where we're streaming live. Also, A Reason for Hope on YouTube. We'd appreciate it if you would um, subscribe and like and uh, click on that notification bell if you'd like to be prompted whenever we're live. It's a great place for archive as well under that live tab. Anytime we've been live, it will archive there. So if you missed the show, if you wanted to recap on a question we did, or even check out our services here at Calvary Christian Fellowship, it's all right there for you on YouTube as well. A Reason for Hope. And uh, we're live there, and also that live tab for your archives. Also, Pastor Scott here, I just introduced, is on Twitter. He posts, certainly at the moment, a lot of updates, uh, things going on in Israel and the Middle East uh, as they relate to you know end times and Bible prophecy and all that kind of thing. So you can follow along with him. His handle is Scott R4H, Scott letter R, number four letter H. Follow along with Scott Richards there on Twitter, if you're on Twitter yourself. If you're on the Rumble platform, a relatively newer platform, we post video content there. We're not live there, but we post videos. A Reason for Hope Bible Q&A there on Rumble. And then we have an email address, of course, questionsforhope at gmail.com. Questions for Hope spelled out, all lowercase, at gmail.com. You're welcome to reach out to us there with your question as well. Uh, welcome if you're listening to us on the radio. Do drive safely. Tucson seems to be a little crazy lately with the um, quote-unquote improvements going on on the freeway. And of course, the holidays coming up. There's a lot of traffic out there. So please drive carefully. Keep in mind, if you're listening to us on the radio, you are listening to the last show that we did pre-recorded. We're not live with you. But that email address, questionsforhope at gmail.com, will be your friend. Um, but all those other platforms I mentioned, we are live as can be, so receiving your questions as we go along. Well, snowbird season, what can you do? That's right, snowbird season. We have a lot of increasing population over the cold months, but 
Well, why don't we pray before we get into questions? I imagine you have an update for us as well, Pastor. I do. Scott, you do. I do. Uh, we'll be fairly brief about it, so we can get to uh, your questions out there. But we'll okay. uh, we'll get you up to speed. So yeah, yeah, sounds good. We appreciate that. Yeah. Well, Sean, would you like to to pray? You're you know back from the back from the dead. So uh, that might be an exaggeration, but. <laughs> Okay. okay. <laughs> Dad, thank you that we have the chance to be here. We want to invite you to be here as well. Fill my Father and I with your spirit and allow us to communicate your heart as well as your words. The words that be shared here today mean something to your people, not just emotionally, but truthfully. Let your heart be communicated and let us first share what we receive. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, I appreciate that you do keep us up to date with what's going on in Israel because there's, there's a lot of different uh, you know, viewpoints and uh, you can find... Um, lots of different uh, reports from different uh, angles, so I appreciate your biblical angle on the whole thing. So yeah, please, certainly. Yeah, yeah. So uh, as opposed to the genocidal and uh, nihilistic one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, certainly. Uh, you know, as we've mentioned repeatedly, and we really want to emphasize the point uh, that uh, what is really going on is a spiritual battle. Right. It is a battle for hearts and minds, and even a terrorist group like Hamas and uh, their handlers in Tehran. Fully understand that, uh, yep. you know, the, the shocking development uh, that was uh, released even uh, by our own State Department, saying that uh, the reason that uh, the ceasefire in exchange for hostages came to a grinding halt was, uh, be and this is our State Department, this is not, you know, uh, the IDF or uh, spokesman for the Israeli government, uh, not uh, some in individual that is a Zionist, uh, by any stretch of the imagination, as uh, objective uh, a point of view as you can have. But our own State Department stated that the, the reason that the, uh, the negotiation for the release of, terror, of, of uh, hostages fell apart was because the terrorists were uh, becoming more and more concerned about what these survivors, uh, these hostages, would say if they were released, particularly the 39 women that were supposed to be uh, released. Uh, the amount of sexual brutality uh, right. that has been chronicled and put on the internet by Hamas itself, yeah. uh, not uh, by any kind of uh, pro-Israel propaganda mill, but by the, the Hamas uh, operatives themselves, yeah. is absolutely appalling. But apparently what has happened to these hostages is even more so. So much so that uh, some of the people that have been involved with uh, dealing with the hostages who have been released have uh, talked about it uh, being absolutely uh, shocking, appalling, nauseating, uh, inducing even vomiting in some situations, mm. hearing about what had happened there. Mm. And so because uh, the mad mullahs in Tehran and uh, the uh, terrorists in Hamas know that the only way that they can win this battle, you know, they, they called it uh, uh, Operation Aqsa Flood. Uh, in other words, the, the idea was to take over the Al-Aqsa uh, Mosque and its site in Jerusalem. They knew that wasn't going to happen uh, initially. But they did know that if they could win the battle for hearts and minds in the world, that the world would rally behind their cause, uh, would see Israel as an apartheid pariah nation, uh, and that like South Africa, uh, which was an apartheid nation, sooner or later became so economically and diplomatically isolated that the apartheid regime collapsed. Uh, and so that was their long-term plan, uh, to try to put such pressure on, on Israel that all of their connections, 
not just uh, financially and economically and diplomatically, but even militarily, would eventually collapse and would make them easy pickings uh, for the stockpile of weapons that uh, they have in Iran for this purpose. Iran uh, has uh, obviously shipped some of their weapons to its terrorist proxies, but Iran uh, doesn't send its own soldiers into these battles. It uses these terrorist proxies to accomplish these things. And so their goal was to, uh, you know, again, provoke Israel in a, a way that they knew they would not be able to ignore. And the 1,200 plus that died on October 7th massacred. Uh, this is described as being uh, the largest single loss of Jewish life since the Holocaust, uh, the atrocities that were committed and so forth, absolutely uh, provoking. And the reason they provoked that was they knew what Israel would do. They would come in and they would uh, basically stomp uh, a large portion of Gaza absolutely flat uh, in order to get to these terrorists. Now, Hamas, uh, in contradistinction to the Geneva Conventions, uh, doesn't wear uniforms. That is a war crime in and of itself. Uh, they consistently stock their uh, weapons in mosques and uh, under hospitals. We have seen absolute proof of this uh, in uh, preschools, a huge amount in Kanyonis, the area where the uh, fighting is going on today, uh, was found uh, right outside of a preschool. Uh, just uh, huge anti-tank weapons and stocks of automatic weapons and uh, mortar shells and, and uh, landmines and so forth found right at this particular place. So, you know, when we see exactly what they're up to and Israel going in and having to, in a sense, uh, come down with uh, a very strong hand to deal with all of this. And uh, when you're involved with urban warfare, uh, you're involved with guerrilla warfare, uh, who, how can you tell the difference between a terrorist and a civilian? Very, very difficult to do. Right. So the plot behind all of this was, well, let Israel do this. The amount of, quote unquote, civilian casualties, even if they were terrorists, you could call them civilians and so forth. Mm. Uh, Israel has gone to extreme lengths to warn the people in Gaza to get out of harm's way, to leave the places where they're going to be doing their operations and, and so on. But even with that, there's going to be some people that get caught in the crossfire. So the more they can portray this and make it uh, an issue in the press, the more they were convinced that world opinion would rally against Israel. Israel would be seen as an apartheid nation. We've talked before about how Israel is in no way, shape, or form an apartheid form of government. Just ask uh, the uh, Arab members of the Knesset uh, about all of that. Uh, you know, but uh, the, the, just the, for the edification of those listening, apartheid doesn't mean oh those evil people that have a word associated with them. There is a definition to that. An apartheid state is an economic description of a racial or an ethnically based and prejudiced based system of government and social economics that prevents the religious or I guess the ethnic majority from participating in the same privileges, whether it's in jobs or engagements in government, roles right. in society, different than those of the uh, ethnic minority that is enforcing these rules. So for Israel to be an apartheid state, the 
oppressed Arabs in this case, apart from the ethnic Hebrews, would have to be exempt from the police force, from the military, from roles in government, and basic places in society. Their kids couldn't go to the same schools. We saw examples of this, for instance, the Jim Crow laws. You couldn't go to certain bathrooms. They'd have to ride on certain uh, different buses, that sort of thing. Now, none of that is true in Israel. As you said, there are Arab members of the Knesset there. I guess, uh, Congress or their uh, Senate, if you will. They have Arab members in the Israeli military who are not only allowed but encouraged to serve and are eager to do so, in fact, that they are not exempt from voting, that they are the ones who voted in those Arab members of the Knesset, and then, of course, they do not have separate buses or transportation systems for Arab civilians. Now, if they are outside of Israel say, for instance, coming on work visas from Gaza, they have to go through a series of checkpoints for whatever reason. And of course, that's (laughs) that's, uh, what's going on there. But they don't make the distinction. So know what apartheid, first of all, is, and that this is not in fact the case. Unfortunately, in our 30-second soundbite culture, most have tuned out at this point, but that actually means something, and it's just meant to demonize, just like the word genocide. Oh, there's genocide in the Old Testament. Okay, what does genocide mean? Attention span over. We're moved on to the next topic. All I understood was the Old Testament has genocide in it. Don't fall for this. Yeah, so, you know, all of this is to say that the main purpose behind this is to isolate Israel, because if Israel is isolated, if its economic military lifelines are cut, then they are easy pickings. And the slogan, from the river, the Jordan River, to the sea, Palestine will be free that is free of Jews, free in the same sense they use the word Judenfrei, uh, Judenrein in uh, uh, Germany, free of Jewish people, uh, absolutely exterminated. That is their avowed goal. Read their own documents. You can find out that that's the case. So, you know, we see this going on. We see Israel continuing uh, on in this matter. Benjamin Netanyahu made a statement today that no matter what happens, Israel is going to pursue its goal of wiping out Hamas as a military force in Gaza, whatever it takes, however long it takes. Now, that's really interesting because we are starting to see uh, a glimmer of what I believe the overall strategy, the end game of the the Iranian-backed opposition against Israel uh, coming to fruition. Uh, Earlier uh, this day, uh, UN Secretary General, uh, the UN Secretary General Gutierrez, uh, made quite a splash, Antonio Gutierrez, the Secretary General, by invoking what was called, uh, for uh, lack of a better term, uh, Article 99 in the United Nations today. Uh, the Secretary General of the United Nations has the right to invoke what we would call Article 99, and what Article 99 does is it takes a particular portion of the UN Charter uh, which states that the UN Secretary General has the ability to fast forward a particular issue that needs to be voted on by the UN Security Council. Uh, That is the inner circle of the most dominant nations in the UN, economically and militarily. The United States is part of that, Britain, France, China, Russia, you know, the, the usual members. And then they have rotating guest members uh, that are a part of things as well. Uh, now, Gutierrez decided to use Article 99 to fast forward before this 
the Security Council a motion that would state the United States is going, the United Nations is going to forbid Israel from continuing to attack Gaza, that there will be a UN enforced ceasefire put in place, no matter what the status of Hamas is in Israel. Well, speaking to this, uh, again, uh, U.S. State Department spokesman Matthew Miller declined to comment uh, but uh, and, and said this, there are threats to regional security and threats to global security that are presented by this conflict. We made quite clear that one of the things that we are trying to do is prevent this conflict from spreading. You know, in other words, they're saying, okay, if we can just get you guys to settle down, then uh, this thing isn't going to develop into a regional war. Uh, another reason why this might have some traction is uh, good old Vladimir Putin is now back in the region. We talked about him possibly having a heart attack uh, about two months ago. He may have had a heart attack, but he seems to be hitting on all cylinders now because he was in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. He has been at the uh, United Arab Emirates. Uh, he's been in a lot of the uh, nations that are a part of what we would call the Abraham Accords, speaking to them. Now, Russia and Iran are joined at the hip. We've told you about this beforehand. And so uh, if Iran sees that their gambit to try to destroy Israel is starting to fail, that Hamas is on the edge of being wiped out. And uh, by the way, uh, we saw, uh, among other things, uh, the leadership in Hamas uh, doing some chest thumping and uh, almost spelling out uh, the recipe for their own doom by uh, making the bold claim that the terror tunnels are not for civilians, they are only for Hamas terrorists. Well, Israel said, fine great, here's what we're going to do. We're going to flood those tunnels. We're going to bring in high water pressure and flood these tunnels out. Now, people say, well, what about the hostages? Wouldn't that take them out as well? There's evidence to suggest that because of Hamas's and Iran's uh, worry about what these hostages are going to say when they're released, that, uh, as we've said before, the fate of these hostages may end up being far worse than anything we could imagine. They may not uh, be alive at this particular time. They may be holding on to some as a bargaining chip. We don't know, but they certainly didn't want to release those 39 women that they promised they were going to release last week. Didn't do that. Instead, launched missiles at uh, Tel Aviv, and it was on again like Donkey Kong. So when the uh, UN gets involved, Gutierrez cites Article 99 to put this ceasefire to uh, the front of the order well, it tells me something. It tells me that Hamas is on the edge of going out. It tells me that Israel is doing its job and doing it very, very effectively. And if, uh, in fact, the uh, Sheen Beit and Mossad uh, do come to the conclusion that these hostages are no longer living, then it's going to be Katie bar the door. There's going to be no holding back whatsoever along these lines. So uh, when uh, Gutierrez cited Article 99. You can bet the response from Israel was pretty strong. Israel's UN ambassador, uh, Gilad Erdin, accused Gutierrez of reaching, quote, a new moral low by sending the letter to the Security Council, adding the Secretary's general call for a ceasefire is actually a call to keep Hamas' reign of terror in Gaza. Uh, Gutierrez told the council in his letter, the war may aggravate existing threats to international peace and security. So uh, this article, by the way, has been used in decades. Uh, this is really an unprecedented uh, move. And uh, so 
Uh, we uh, will have to see how things shake out here because, once again, it's a game of chicken. And as uh, Captain Bart Mancuso of uh, the Hunt for Red October was once famously quoted as saying, the thing about playing chicken is you got to know when to flinch. Uh, Israel is not going to back off of this. Uh, they are going to continue to finish their mission to wipe out Hamas. Uh, it's very interesting that they are now talking about uh, just getting it over with and engaging with Hezbollah in Lebanon, at least until Hezbollah follows through on a UN resolution, 1711, that said that they had to withdraw all their forces to the north of a particular river inside of Lebanon, which they have refused to do. Uh, the United Nations uh, peacekeeping uh, troops that are there basically stand around and watch as uh, Hezbollah launches missiles at Israel from Lebanon. So Israel, once again, is engaging in that particular theater as well. So pray for the peace of Jerusalem, uh, as uh, we always tell you to do. Pray for the Israeli people. Uh, pray for the hostages. We pray that they would be rescued somehow. Uh, hope against hope. Uh, we would encourage you to pray again that uh, the people in Palestine would see with their own eyes what the failed uh, political slash theological regime they are under, Islam, has wrought for them. That following the rantings of a 7th century warlord uh, is not going to be their way to heaven. Rather, it's going to facilitate their journey in the other direction. Uh, we have seen a tremendous amount of Jewish people turning to faith in Jesus as the Messiah, over a million, according to a uh, survey uh, that was run uh, on Joel Rosenberg's allisrael.com site. Uh, fascinating move among the Jewish people. We need to pray as well that that would happen among the Palestinians. Mm. Amen. I wanted to mention, too, we have a conference coming up early next year, January 19th and 20th. Um, our friend Ronnie Simone is going to be coming from Israel. Uh, he's a, a very well-respected tour guide out there, and our own Pastor Scott here is going to be speaking as well. Did you want to say a few words about that? Yeah, just uh, if you've never had the opportunity to uh, hear Ronnie, Ronnie has been our tour guide on both of our Israel trips. He's going to be our tour guide on our 2025 trip. And uh, we're going to, on Friday night, have a session where Ronnie's going to give an overview of what's happening in the Middle East. He's a retired IDF colonel, uh, has amazing contacts. It'll be a fascinating insight from him. I'll be teaching on the book of Romans chapter 11, what our view as believers in Christ needs to be uh, regarding the Jewish people. Is God finished with Israel yet? That controversy that seems to be uh, growing by leaps and bounds on the internet. Right. Uh, we'll be dealing with that. And then on Saturday, uh, Ronnie is going to be doing his Israel Comes to You a tour, which is a virtual tour of Israel. So if you're thinking about going to Israel, if you've ever gone to Israel before and would like to have a refresher course, uh, this is going to be just a tremendous time. You will never look at your Bible the same way again mm, after yep. going through uh, Ronnie's Israel Comes to You presentation. And of course, hopefully it's going to whet your appetite for being a part of uh, our trip to Israel. We'll, we have signups available on our website. Uh, as we speak, but uh, you'll also be able to uh, sign up and get a place on our tour uh, at that particular gathering. And uh, it's fascinating to me, even with all that's going on in the Middle East, uh, we are seeing just an unprecedented level of interest in this tour already, as far as people already signing up. So, right. um, you know, we're planning on taking one bus. We're open to taking two. So there's room for you yet. Right. Uh, come on out, check it out, and, and start 25. praying. 
2025. 25, yeah. 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 Well, I can't, I can't believe we're even mentioning those years yet. 2025. Yeah. Yep. Where's my jetpack and yeah, my, exactly. my hovercraft? Yeah. Well, thank, thank you for that, uh, that update. Definitely prayers for Israel. Continue prayers for that. Um, well, we have some questions here. I'm going to throw out to you guys. Um, thank you for them. A question from Driana. What does it mean that God is not the God of the dead? In Matthew twenty-two thirty-two, Matthew twenty-two thirty-two, well, what does first, it mean? God is not the God of the dead. Yeah, first remember uh, the passage didn't start in verse thirty-two, but switch the numbers around twenty-three. That was a part of a longer conversation where the Sadducees, which were a political group, uh, basically the secularists and materialists of their day, modern-day atheists would be the closest equivalent. They didn't believe in an afterlife, they didn't believe in a resurrection, and so notice what's bringing up the topic, the resurrection, they gave their killer objection to the concept of it. If they can demonstrate that it's absurd, then obviously it's not a belief that you would want to entertain. So like atheists would do today, they'd drum up some bizarre scenario, either based on assumptions that we don't agree with, or that simply aren't grounded in reality, or both. And they presented the situation where, if you start in verse 23, they mention a man who married a woman, and then he died. The woman then followed what was called the Leverite Law, where she would marry his brother, his next of kin. He would name the child after his brother, and essentially sire offspring in his name. This happened seven times makes you wonder what she was feeding them, <laughs> but going through seven brothers who all tried to engage in intimacy with this woman, they then wonder if this resurrection's even a thing, whose wife is she going to be? Because they all consummated the marriage. And Jesus drew them on the carpet the same way we need to learn to do in catching false assumptions, where he says, you, and, and this is really funny, he says, you are mistaken not knowing the scriptures, which speaking to a Sadducee was something that would yeah. be basically calling out a uh, college graduate and saying, did you pass math? Yeah. <laughs> it, are you familiar was, with the alphabet? <laughs> yeah, th this is a fundamental issue that he was calling them out on, but you know, neither the scriptures nor the power of God, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, remember, concerning the resurrection from the dead, right. have you not read, once again, kind of uh, being a little smarmy with them, what was spoken to you by God saying, I am, present tense, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and then makes the conclusion from that quote from Exodus 3, he is not the God of the living, but, or the God of the dead, but of the living. Now, it isn't to say that when you physically die, categorically, God's no longer in your jurisdiction, right? Yeah. It's saying that God speaks in the present to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 6 about what? Him being present tense, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If we adopt the Sadducees view, then when you die, you're done, right? Right. That to believe in this whole, this life is where, well, basically, eternity doesn't just make up its mind, this is the only mind of which to make. Then we're talking about, I was the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, those guys who ceased to exist in the past, according to your worldview, I was their God, and now I have the chance to be yours for a short time, Moses. Right. That would be their world. Right. But God's world... The, the actual world we're living in says what? I am the God, present tense. He's not saying, again, distinct from the living to the dead. He's saying these guys are now alive. They're in the presence of, well, 
not yet, of course, but they're in the presence of the Lord. They are alive forever. They don't cease to exist after they die. That's your assumption. And he points out the fact that when we are resurrected, God remains our God. Mm. Now, whether that's a pleasant relationship or not is another issue, but that's the point that he was making to them. So catch the assumptions, read the whole context, and in this case, you only have to read one verse prior, concerning the resurrection, not concerning whether God's authority over you if you're dead or alive. So note that point. He's saying, I am, to draw attention to the fact these guys are still alive, therefore there is a resurrection, because they died. Right. That's what was bringing it up. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. Anything yeah. to add to that? No, that's, that's, no, that nailed it. That does it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Well, uh, Drianna, thank you for that question. We appreciate it. A uh, question from Talon. Uh, how does God want us to spend our time? I love these kind of questions. Well, uh, Profound. Well, I think there's a number of uh, things that we could point to in Scripture as far as how God wants us to spend our time. And I think it kind of comes back to uh, what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God. Uh, because we are made in God's image and likeness, there's two things that are inescapably true about us as human beings. Number one, we have an insatiable need for purpose and meaning within our lives. God is a purposeful creator. He has created us on purpose and for a purpose. And we as human beings can live with a lot of things, but purposelessness is not one of them. Uh, you ever been around a teenager or, or you know, a tween who says, I'm bored? Well, what is boredom? Boredom is the emotional reaction we have to the sensation of a purposeless life. Right. Uh, you can only try to fill yourself up with entertainment and things along that line so long until finally you just get bored with it. Why? Because God has created us for greater things than that. Uh, we are his workmanship, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 says, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You know, and so when we talk about our time, and how God wants us to use it, our time should be purposeful, okay? What is that purpose then? Well, you know, we could take a look at the book of Proverbs, which gives a whole a laundry list of things that we can do purposefully within this life. But I think if we're going to condense it down uh, into a handy GPS that you can use, Talon, it's uh, again found in Micah 6.8. He has shown you O oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, hmm. but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So uh, if we want to figure out uh, what God wants us to do with a day, those three things would not be a bad place to start. Right. You know, again, starting your day by saying, okay, God, what are you up to today? I want to be a part of it. Lead me and guide me and prepare me, first of all, to do justly, to be a person that walks according to the righteous standards of your word. God is a righteous God. It, Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Mm -hmm. If I believe in Jesus, if I believe in his words, if I trust him, I'm gonna want to live my life in harmony with what he said. So uh, in my horizontal relationships, I'm gonna wanna do right by people. Right. Uh, I wanna be a person of integrity. I wanna be a person that goes the extra mile for others. I wanna be a person that lightens others' loads, not uh, like the uh, Pharisees we mentioned uh, that put heavy loads on the backs of people and don't lift a, a finger to help them. Right. Uh, so we wanna do justly. We wanna love mercy, okay? We wanna look at situations where uh, perhaps we get a chance to emulate God's right. character and that he's been merciful to us 
maybe we can be merciful to others. Mm -hmm. And that mercy can work out in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, for instance, if I'm driving down the road and I see someone stuck by the side of the road, scratching their head, looking at a flat tire, uh, could very possibly be that God has designed, does put in me a desire and the capability to be able to come alongside of them and show them some mercy and be able to help them, at least to be able to call 911 if they don't have a, a cell phone, if the uh, breakdown is too much for me to fix, yeah. maybe help change a tire, something like that. That's just an example of that, looking for an opportunity to be able to demonstrate uh, the Lord's love in this world. Mm -hmm. You know, Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I've loved you. Well, when in doubt, if we're looking for something to fill up our time in this day, say, Lord, give me the opportunity to be merciful to people, to bring your mercy, to bring your compassion, to bring your love to people in tangible and measurable ways. That's the nuance of mercy there. Mm -hmm. And to walk humbly with your God. Okay, Lord, what does it mean for me to live my life in such a way that at the end of the day, I know you a little bit better? Yeah. Well, that's gonna start with maybe spending some time in his word, he can speak to us, yep. maybe spending some time in prayer so that we can speak to him, maybe getting together with other believers who don't, who have different spiritual gifts than I do, so we can edify mm -hmm. and build each other up. Um, you know, again, this is one scripture, <laughs> and, and it can pretty much, you know, again, apply to the, the whole panorama of life if, of course, uh, we come in with that mindset. Yep. And kind of going back to the I'm bored kind of thing. Uh, saying I'm bored is the anti-God mindset because we're told in God's presence is fullness of joy at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. No one's going to be yawning in heaven. Right. Oh man, there forever and do yeah, all of this. You know, say, when we're reconciled to the God of perfect purpose and we are reconciled to the God of perfect mm -hmm. love, we will have significance and security uh, unlike any that we've ever known before. And uh, what God wants to do is to bring a little heaven down to our lives. He can do that each and every day. Yeah. That's so. it. Yeah. Anything to throw into that, Sean? No. Well, well done. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Beautiful stuff. Moving it's funny, right I've, along. I've known people who, you know, that love, uh, love mercy. I've known people that love drama. They love to, um, they, they kind of thrive off of that. And it struck me how opposite that is to love mercy, to love being merciful towards people rather than being someone that loves it when you, you know, when you trip up or when you do something that I can get you for, where I can argue with you and have that drama with you. Yeah. It's the complete polar opposite of that, to love mercy, like you say, to find opportunities to be merciful to people. Yeah. Um, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, if you start looking at life through that mindset, yeah. there's more than enough opportunities and necessities where uh, mercy's really lacking. Absolutely, yeah. You know, yeah, you want to talk about getting in and filling a, a niche in society that is uh, definitely <laughs> uh, not uh, tried and found wanting, but wanting for triers. Right. Just that one alone. Yeah, plenty of vacancies there yeah, for sure. Exactly. Yeah, great stuff. Well, thanks. Thanks, Taylor, for your, your question. Hope that helps you out as you live your life out before the Lord. I have a question as from an anonymous person um some biblical guidance for someone struggling to focus on worship and jesus this is from someone struggling with a lot of negative emotions um seems like even kind of some ptsd um and as they've lost their joy they feel like they're a broken spirit so some biblical guidance how to get that focus back on jesus and back on worship yeah i'm looking at the email from the individual it seems like the 
underlying issue is that they haven't felt close to God, that they experienced his closeness was some time ago and that it's stolen their joy, it's broken their spirit. I think, and again, you're uh, pursuing counseling, so I won't uh, try and interfere with that, but the issue that I think a lot of people have nowadays, myself included, is that they think that sorrow, grief, the recognition of something as painful is in of itself a bad thing. That if I am sad, then I'm not worshiping God. That if I'm grieving, that means that I'm somehow distant from God. That this is a sinful attitude and behavior. Mm -hmm. Nothing could be further from the truth. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 4, Solomon stated plainly by inspiration of the Holy Spirit that there is a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. So when we have the mindset of, oh, you know, I'm so broken, I can't go to God right now, you probably need to read the book of Jeremiah and Lamentations because that's full of people who are bringing their junk honestly before God, and it brought them closer to him than it would have without it. Now, when we ask the question, well, is there a kind of a a time and a place for it, was there also a line that those things can draw? And that's true for every emotion. You know, there's people who are so joyful in God that they use it as a metric to determine true or false doctrine based off of whether I feel joyful in it, and they end up in cult groups. There's uh, people who say, you know, I determine uh, my relationship with God is good based on whether or not I get a certain sensation or emotional reaction, and that's simply not the case. Mm. If you have the capacity, and this is, you know, referencing the wizard of Oz, but it's still, I think, a valid point. The fact that you are sensate enough to grieve, to recognize something as wrong, mm -hmm. it means you still have a heart that's capable of being hurt, because the alternative is a heart so insensate, so uh, encased in stone, to use the biblical term, that it can't feel anything, and that's what C.S. Lewis called hell. <laughs> so if we're going to I guess, entertain the mindset that, you know, I'm sad, therefore I'm distant from God. No, he wants you to come to him with your grief and with your pain just as much as with your joy. There can be reconciliation and comfort in those things, but don't think that you in your sorrow are somehow less able to recognize who God is. That's what worship means, to bow down than you would if you were feeling some other kind of emotion, because people who've been through legitimate pain in their life need to, ought to, grieve about it. And if they aren't allowed to do that, if the church is a place for happiness, then they've missed the whole point. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think about what is, you know, what is this life all about? I mean, why doesn't God just do an instantaneous rapture yeah. The moment we receive Jesus, yeah. I mean, wouldn't that solve a lot of problems? Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of lot less wear and tear. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, why is there this process? Okay, barring that, why doesn't He just com complete our sanctification the moment we pray that prayer, yeah. supernaturally make us just like Christ, without any kind of faults or flaws <laughs> that that are that are part of things? Yeah. He did for me. I don't know. What well, you're yeah, there's about. Yeah. Some, <laughs> believe me, there's some, some people who told me crazier things than that. <laughs> about their, their walk with God. Well, the, the, the bottom line is this. God begins a work within us to make us like Jesus mm -hmm. in our character. And, uh, you know, when we are first hipped to all of that, when someone says, yeah, the Holy Spirit is in your life, 
to make you like like Jesus, and and it's going to be, you know, a, a wonderful, wonderful thing. Well, you know, we basically take a look at Jesus, and you know, we have sort of a imperfect understanding of who he is, especially early on as as we come to Christ. We got to read uh, about his life in the Gospels mm-hmm. and and begin to understand what it means to walk with him, and and so on. Uh, but uh, you know, the the interesting thing. Is, is this, part of being like Jesus, right, mm-hmm. is experiencing sorrow. Right. Uh, I mean, that really gets undersold in a lot of Christian circles yeah. these days. I think about Isaiah 53, it says, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot out of dry and barren ground. He has no stately former majesty that we should look upon or appearance we should be attracted to him. He is a man of sorrows, mm-hmm and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Now, I think everybody wants to be like Jesus when they look at, say, Acts chapter 1, where he's ascending into heaven, uh, where he's described in Philippians chapter 2, is seated at the right hand of God, where every knee's bowing and tongue confessing that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I think uh, we're all over being like Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, where we see him glorified. But are we really into being like Jesus if it means, say, for instance, going through a time of grief? Because one of the things I've discovered about going through times of grief and sorrow and disappointment and fear within life is that there's no better way for us to develop a really rare commodity these days, empathy. Mm -hmm. We're all so into ourselves and what's in it for me and you know, staring at our little black boxes and seeing who's uh, giving us hits and clicks and thumbs ups and things like that. Uh, we don't really have a whole lot of time to think about anybody else. But Jesus wants us to think about other people. In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who so wonderfully comforts us who are in any affliction, that we might comfort others with the same comfort whereby we're comforted by God. Yeah. Okay, where do we get that comfort to comfort others? Well, we've got to be comforted by God. Well, that tells me something. That tells me that part and parcel of this process is that God will go out of his way to put me in an uncomfortable situation. Right. And maybe that's emotional. Maybe that's relational. Maybe that's financial. Maybe that's physical. I think about going through... Uh, my cancer journey and all that stuff wasn't comfortable no didn't really enjoy all of that (laughs) but the 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 beautiful fruit that came out of that is that uh, for the first time in my ministry i could sit down with somebody who is diagnosed with cancer who's gotten the bad news and be able to look them in the eye and say you know i know what it's like to have a doctor tell you you have cancer but this is what the lord's done for me right this is how he was there for me. And, and just to be able to tell him, yeah, there's going to be times where you had come to the end of your rope and you feel like, uh, you know, uh, you know, that nobody understands and, and, uh, you're going to come into times where you're kind of wondering where God is and your emotions are going to take over, but don't worry. Others have gone down this same path. And I'm here to tell you at the end of the line, the Lord's going to be there for you. Yeah. But you know, if you try to say to somebody, uh, who has cancer, Oh, I know what that's like. And they go, really? When were you dying? Well, uh, you know, I had a sore throat once, and it was really, really bad. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's not going to carry the day. 
So why does God take us down these paths? I think it's one of those, he works all things together for good, not that all things are good, but he works all things together for good so that we can have compassion on other people. And, you know, I'm not sure uh, this is anonymous, obviously, but, uh, you know, anonymous out there, I would say that you're going through a tough time for sure, but uh, if you've had a military background, going through boot camp was a tough time. Uh, I, I've seen these uh, documentaries on people studying to be Navy SEALs or Special Forces guys, mm. and it's a tough, tough time. But you get through that training, and what does it do for you? It equips you to be able to be used above and beyond yeah. anyone else in the armed services. Right. Well, sometimes I think God takes us through that spiritual SEAL training. Yeah. Uh, because he's wanting us to get to the other side. And it's not comfortable, and it's not easy, but don't lose sight of the goal at the end of the rainbow, if you will, being like Jesus, sharing more of his compassion for others, being uh, more adept to be able to share his word with warmth and, and uh, with genuine compassion and love rather than just slapping cold theological answers on people. Right. But there's only one way you get there, and that's by going through it. And it yeah. sounds like you're going through it. And, and you know, Sean, would you want to pray for our anonymous th- friend right now? Yeah, well, I guess the Lord knows their name. Yeah. To add to the individuals that are grieving, we can name so many. I want to pray that you would be as present with them in that time of emotional reflections they would be at any other time yes. in their life, that your promises would be first and foremost in their hearts, and that your hand would ju- be just as present with them, whether they feel it or not. You know what we need when we need it, and as we need it, we pray you would provide it. But give us a heart and a mind that knows what to look for, and as well a heart of gratitude to take notes when those times of comfort come, not only so that we can share, but so we know something good when we have it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 And like you said, how good to know we have a God that's well acquainted with our suffering. He even put on skin like we have and walked in this world. Yeah. That's the greatest comfort yeah. to me to, to know that. He didn't you know, distance himself from our pain, but voluntarily became a part of it. That's right. Yeah. Suffer beyond what we ever will as well. Yeah, I remember not long after I became a Christian, someone told me that God's the only one you'll ever talk to. You don't have to say the words, do you know what I mean? Right. And that's not right. just because of the whole omniscient <laughs> thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah, exactly. Jesus has been through it all, and That's he right. cares. Yeah. That's the most amazing thing. Yeah, yeah, amen. Yeah, amen. It's good. Yeah. Well, thank you for being part of the show. Hope that ministers to you and helps you along. Uh, we'll continue to pray for you. Uh, question from Mike: Does God ever give Christians over to sin if they keep committing them over and over? If so, what does that look like? There is spoken in the Bible about God turning people over to their ways. What does that look like? Yeah, well, it's a reference to Romans 1, among other places, and the idea is in that of judgment, that those who did not like to worship or glorify God, but made him into the image of things like corruptible men, birds, forfeit animals, creeping things, it goes on to say, therefore, God gave them up to vile passions, to do things that were not fitting, and then it goes on to give examples. But when we're talking about the whole Romans Road scenario, if you will, what I think a lot of people miss in this buildup is that Romans 1 isn't like categorically isolating off the people who are beyond saving, as opposed to the Romans 8 crowd who are saved. There's a 
progression of thought from Romans chapter 1 to the whole book. So when we start in 1, what we're getting the picture of, and what Romans 1 through 3 are all laying out for us as plain as day, is that this is the situation that we're all in. We're all children of wrath. None of us honor God. All of us have been handed over to our sin in one way or another. Mm. So when we ask the question, you know, I keep finding myself doing this, what you're doing is what everyone else is doing in your way. And if that's plain enough to be understood, let's just work with that for a little bit. If God knew what he was getting into when he saved all of us, that all of us in our own ways were storing up wrath for ourselves like the others, Ephesians chapter 2 says, then we can not only depend on, but count on the assumption of grace and patience that God knew what he was in for. But then also understanding that Romans 4 onward builds up the work of salvation as this completed, not completing, but completed work, we then understand the kind of comfort that someone in the Romans 7 scenario is going through. And I'm making these vague references not just to flex and say, oh, I know the book of Romans. Look these things up, because as you're reading through the book, you're going to understand this idea of thought bringing us from our position of whether we didn't know God in Romans 1, those who do know God and knew better but still fell in Romans 2, the groups in Romans 3 were after quote after quote of the Old Testament and saying there is none who honors God. We're all put in the same situation that Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 sets up dead in our trespasses and sins. Then chapter 4 and verse 4 of sub, of each sub, what was the word I was looking for? Doesn't matter. Each <laughs> book are setting up for us, but God. But God. He's the exception. He's what intervened in this. So backing up then on the idea of what this looks like, it's looking like someone who's living apart from God. And this is where we all fit into at one moment or another. When we're caught up in sin, our lustful passions and desires, A, most of us don't know we're doing it because it's just what we've always done or what feels natural to us. Secondly, anyone who's living this side of heaven is going to fall back into those things. That's why sanctification is a hope, not a fulfillment, why we're talking about the here, the already but not yet, I think was the quote. Yeah. Uh, in reference to heaven and perfection, but it, it all builds on that idea. And if we get caught in the trap of, I'm still fallen and sinful, therefore I've never been saved, or I'll always be this way, we're missing the whole point as to why a conversation continued after the bad news. If we understand that in Jesus we are made justified, or just as if I'd never sin, right. then that is a place of motivation to live up to those things, mm-hmm. to pursue, to make, you know, not necessarily difficult, but costly decisions in our lives, being able to look ourselves honestly in the mirror, just speaking for myself and saying, these are my areas of weakness, these are the ways my flesh manifests itself, so how do I live in light of the new life I've been called to do? And that can be through amputation, through social accountability, et cetera, et cetera. For other people, it can be, you know, I, I 
go to the store and I always find myself buying a drink. I need to make sure I don't go shopping alone or if I entrust someone else in my life to get groceries, I can't handle these phone apps. I always get uh, you know bogged down in purchasing things that I shouldn't. Or maybe I'm just not wise with my time. I need to go down to a stupid phone. And the same thing is true for people who have trouble looking things up on the internet. It all builds up into this mindset of, I'm getting more and more ready for heaven as things go on. And if that's then the case, how do I live in light of that? Well, there are going to be times where we live in spite of it, like what you're talking about, Mike. I always seem to fall into these things. But then there's the balance of wisdom and grace. And my prayer in my own struggles, and feel free to borrow it, I don't think God will get tired of hearing it, is the idea of, okay, God, today I have an opportunity to be a vessel of your power and showing me capable of resisting my sin, which I know I could not do apart from you. Or I get to be a vessel of mercy, that as I'm put, I'm stumbling in many things, as James says, I can recognize that your death and resurrection was enough, that I can be grateful for the fact that these things don't have a bearing over my eternity, even though they still do have some weight and influence over my life here and now. So just to wrap this all up, because again, we got like a minute, so I think we'll just finish out the broadcast (laughs) with this. Understand that when you fall, it's not a failure in the sense of, oh, well, I guess Jesus just didn't take, because if I truly belong to Christ, then I'd, I'd call him Lord, then I'd do everything that he says, right? And I also wouldn't do the thing at the end and say, no, you're still a fallen sinful human being, you're going to stumble on many things. But First John chapter 2 and verse 1 is incredibly important. Um, Brethren, I write these things to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the propitiation. See, I knew that word. A ransom note, literally, for our sins. Mm. If that's our working assumption, that Jesus, you've dealt with my sin, now see that it less and less is dealing with me, then we're doing what's called growing. But if not, and if we always find ourselves more a vessel of mercy, understand you're going to find yourself sometimes one day going... Wow, that uh, hadn't happened a lot recently. God's doing a work. Right. Yeah. Progression, not perfection. Mm. We'll only be perfect when we see Jesus, but he wants us to grow. Love it. Well, that's all you're getting from us today. We'll see you back again tomorrow. We're going live in half an hour with Book of Ezekiel tonight. Yeah. Yeah. See you there, hopefully. God bless. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.